Thanks, Dave. Good morning. Hey, let's get right into it. Matthew chapter 17, if you would. Uh, we're going to be in verses 22 through 27, I believe. Matthew 17, 22 through 27. Um, this, Jesus has been doing some pretty intense ministry in this middle portion of Matthew's gospel. He's been feeding people. He's been healing people. It's been a really intense season of ministry, and he has just taken a few of his, um, kind of his inner circle of disciples up onto a mountain, and they have, uh, they, they have experienced his majesty. They've experienced his glory. And now they've come down the mountain, and, Jesus, and they met up with the rest of these disciples, and Jesus has done another miraculous healing and kind of publicly rebuked the disciples as well for really trusting in themselves and, and, and putting the majority of their confidence in themselves rather than in God. And now we come to this passage where Jesus again foretells his death and his resurrection, but there's also this curious well, we'll get, we'll get into it in a moment. It, it, it makes, this passage today makes me scratch my head a bit. It, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, but I think once you get into the text, at least I was scratching my head uh, this week and last week, when you get into the text, you, can, you really can start to, to make sense of it and apply it to your life, and I hope that you'll have that experience today. So here, let's, let's read it, and you will see what I am talking about. Matthew chapter 17, that's the first book of the New Testament. I'll use the black Bibles around the room if you'd like to. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home. That's our gift to you, no strings attached. Matthew 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed when they came to Capernaum the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said does your teacher not pay the tax and Peter said yes and when he came into the house when Peter came into the house Jesus spoke to him first saying what do you think Simon from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? Do they take it from their sons or from others? And when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel that was worth a total of four drachmas. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's word. Here's the big idea this morning. True freedom is found in being reconciled to God and experienced. True freedom is experienced through loving and serving other people. Matthew is actually the only person who, who records this interaction in all the Gospels. And R.C. Sproul, um, he's a theologian that's, uh, that is now gone to be with the Lord, but he, he was wondering if it was because of Matthew's uh, former life as a tax collector, that this was actually interesting to Matthew, kind of anchored in his mind and in his heart, and he recorded it in his gospel. He might have found it particularly memorable because of that. But we see as we read this text that Jesus and his disciples, they're moving back into uh, Capernaum, which has largely been their base of operation through the three years of Jesus's public ministry. 
And from Capernaum, they'll begin to work their way toward Jerusalem, which will, he will eventually be arrested. He will be betrayed, arrested, and crucified in Jerusalem. And just to give you some context, that's about a month from this time that we're reading about in, uh, in Matthew 17. We don't know exactly why these Jewish tax collectors went to Peter uh, rather than Jesus, but it could, have, it could have been a number of things. I've just been trying to get my mind around that this week. And, and I think it's important right out of the gates for us to know that when we hear about, when we read about tax collectors in the Gospels, they're often the bad guys who have turned their backs on their people, the Israelites, and are now working down the Romans. And then they're coming back to the Israelites and shaking them down for cash and taking it and giving it back to Rome. But these tax collectors are Israelite tax collectors who are collecting tax on behalf of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers. And they're collecting this tax for the upkeep and for the ongoing operations of the temple. So they could have, uh, it's possible that they were coming to Peter. Uh, They're coming to Jesus, just testing the waters a bit, likely uh, lightly provoking he and the disciples uh, they could have been making, making the rounds beforehand. Passover is about a month away when this tax will be collected from the majority of Israelites. So they could have been making their rounds and, and they've heard that Jesus is a rabbi. And so they're asking his disciples, hey, does he pay the tax? Is he going to, to pay this tax? Regardless, though, they go, to, they go to Peter rather than Jesus, which I think on the surface as I'm reading through the text, it seems a bit avoidant in some ways. Uh, I don't know if you read it like that. Uh, it's like taking gossipy concerns to your coworkers instead of your manager. Like some of us do these things, right? I think that's a, a temptation for us. And so I think there's kind of a principle under the text here, just even around that, that um, that can be a good challenge for us that when we have concerns, when controversy comes, are we willing to have honest conversations uh, rather than being subversive? And this applies to our workplaces. This applies to our family relationships. This applies to church life. This applies in so many different arenas of our lives. There's a good faith principle here that basically says, uh, let's talk to people rather than about people. So we can just kind of tuck that in our pocket, life principle. Um, This two drachma tax, it was originally given to the Israelite people by God through Moses, and it was a tax that was only meant to be given to males who were 20 years or older, and it was only meant to be paid one time in their entire life. That's it. The Bible doesn't really say anything about this being good or bad, um, but it, it, it developed into an annual tax to, to keep up the temple, its operations, its staff, and, and all of that. Um, this uh, one drachma, uh, this is all like foreign stuff, right? It's a couple of, uh, it's 20 centuries ago, but a drachma was a, a, the modern day equivalent of about one day's wage for just an average middle-class person. And it was a two drachma tax. So it, it wouldn't necessarily bankrupt anybody, um, but it was to be two drachma no matter whether you were poor or whether you were rich. The rich shouldn't pay more, the, the poor should not uh, pay less. Um, it was, it, was, it was to be paid once in a lifetime, but now it's developed into this annual tax 
And it, it, I've said this, but I'll just say it again. It funded temple upkeep. It funded building projects. It funded the operations of the temple staffing and all of that. So we could think about it like a tax on the sons of Israel that were like a, it was like a mark of their devotion to Yahweh. It was, it was a, it, it was, it was in some ways like buy-in, like we're, we're all in. We believe in our religious system. We are a part of the nation of Israel. So it symbolized patriotic pride in some ways. And when this, these tax collectors, when they come and they ask Peter if his teacher or if his rabbi, if he pays the tax or not, Peter's answer is so confusing. He's like, yes. Well, does he or does he not? Does he not? Yes, he does. But I think... Um, as we look into the text, we'll start to see that, that Peter was, uh, that Peter likely believed that Jesus was planning to pay this tax, although rabbis in the day were given an exemption. So if Jesus considered himself a rabbi and claimed that title among the Israelites, he would be exempted from this tax. I know I'm giving you a bunch of history, but I think it's important for us to know the context here. Um, and it's at this point in this story where we start to move, I believe, into this, this strange and powerful territory where we start to see in new and clear ways just more of Jesus's insane people skills. His wisdom, his tact, and also his authority becomes more and more evident, more and more apparent. Um, Jesus asks Peter, the moment Peter comes into the house, about how kings of the earth handle their taxes and their tolls and their building projects. Uh, he, he knows what's happening outside the house. He knows about this interaction. And what Jesus does is he, makes, he uses this earthly reality to make the heavenly point. Hey, Peter, who do the kings of the earth, who do they tax? Do they tax their sons or do they tax their subjects? And Peter's answer is, they, of course, they tax their subjects, not their own family members. And Jesus says this curious thing that was sure to make a mark on Peter and, and to make a mark on these other disciples. And they would start to develop this theology throughout then our New Testaments. And, and Jesus' answer is, if they, if they tax their subjects, that means something. It means sons are free. Jesus is the son, but Jesus uses this plural. He says, well, then the sons are free. I didn't catch it at first, but uh, once I caught it through reading commentaries, I, I could not unsee it. And what Jesus is doing in this statement, then the son or the sons are free, is he's making another claim about who he is. He's making another claim about his identity as the son of God. But that you can kind of like, ex it extrapolates from there. He's also making a claim, the sons, he's making a claim about those who belong to him, to God's new community. And the logic is this, the temple is God's, belongs to God. And Jesus is God, and Jesus is also the son, and therefore, Jesus has no obligation to pay the temple tax, and neither do the sons. And I think, so that's, that's the story. And here, I think, are two lessons for us to, two truths for us to live by. Number one, and these are really my two points this morning, just two. Um, number one, in Christ, children of God are freed from the Old Testament's laws and regulations. Through Christ, he has fulfilled the law, and therefore, 
sons of God, sons and daughters of the kingdom, are freed from the Old Testament's laws and regulations, the civil and the ceremonial laws. The moral law remains binding. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. All of, essentially, the moral law stands. So, number one, I'll just repeat it. In Christ, children of God are freed from the Old Testament's laws and demands. And then my second point this morning is this, that this freedom doesn't just make us free. It doesn't just free us in order to, to make us free, but it actually frees us then to love and to serve the people around us freely. I know I put a lot of frees in there, but the point is we're free. In Christ, we're free people, but we're freed to something. We're not just freed entirely like, hey, go do whatever you want. I think it was Martin Luther who was famous for, for saying, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do whatever you want. It makes sense. The logic is, if I'm loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I can do whatever I want because what I most want to do will be pleasing to him. Does that make sense? Here's the uh, first point. In Christ, children of God are freed from the Old Testament's laws and regulations. Um, Jesus is about to fulfill the law and the prophets through his sacrifice, and he is going to usher in an entirely new age, this new covenant era. And this temple, historically for Israel, has been God's dwelling place. It's been where his presence dwelled and where he met with men. It's the primary, and women, it's the primary place of worship and where the sins of men and women were atoned for. Every year on the Day of Atonement, but the sacrificial system throughout the year, people would bring uh, bulls and goats and other animals to these priests and they would sacrifice uh, these animals for the sins of the people. And so at this point in Jesus's day, as we're reading in Matthew chapter 17, this point in redemptive history, this temple is, it's the place of pardon. It's the place where priests who are mediators between God and men would offer the blood of bulls and goats, the innocent giving their lives to cover the guilty. Hebrews chapter nine is all about how uh, if you read the book of Hebrews in your New Testaments, it's all about Israel's sacrificial system and how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And I would recommend that you dig into Hebrews. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. Frederick Dale Bruner, a, a theologian and commentator, he says this. He says, Jesus is the royal son of God. And Jesus is the royal son of God he will replace the temple, this place where God's presence dwells, and he will mediate all by himself the presence of God, the King, to every believer. So no longer in the New Covenant era do we have to go to a temple. We go to Christ himself. And Bruno writes, Jesus is God's temple in person, and he pays the temple tax with his own blood. He actually pays this tax with his own blood. As the Son of God, Jesus knows that he is completely free from this two drachma tax because the temple is his Father's house and the Father's sons are free. In verse 22 and 23, if you go up, he says um, Jesus foretells his death and his resurrection to his disciples. But these guys, they, they don't really have a category at all for, for um, the likelihood of his resurrection. They can imagine death because it's everywhere around them. And, and I think... Um, like many of us today, like we understand resurrection as a, as a concept, but many of us don't really 
believe it in our day-to-day. We kind of hope for it, but many of us truly have yet to, to risk uh, or stake our lives and our futures on account of the resurrection. We, uh, we, 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 we nod to it, but even in our telling of the gospel, we often forget the resurrection. We say, Jesus died for your sins, but is he still dead? No, he rose on the third day, defeating sin and death, and therefore um, securing his place as the only mediator between God and men. So even if the disciples believed Jesus, that he, he would be delivered up, that he'd be betrayed and killed, they weren't really hoping in his resurrection. And you can tell by the way that Matthew records it, they didn't have a category for resurrection because they were greatly distressed. See that? They were greatly distressed. His, uh, his crucifixion is coming through betrayal. One of his own will sell him out. One that he has invested his days in. One that he has invested his prayers in. One that he has invested his time and his hope and his teaching in will betray him and deliver him over to be executed. And the word that Matthew uses in verse 22 for delivered here is the same word that he will use for Judas's betrayal in Matthew 26, 15 as well. Judas is the one who delivered him up. In God's sovereign plan, Jesus was delivered, but through means, and the means was Judas. These, uh, these disciples, they're distressed at this foretelling of Jesus' betrayal, and they'll, they'll be even more distressed as they see Jesus rested. They see Jesus tried falsely. They'll be even more dismayed and distressed as they see him hung on a Roman cross, crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Breathing his last, even offering, uh, praying, interceding for pardon from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They, they, they're going to be incredibly distressed as they see this. Why? Because they really, really, really love him. They love him. They trust him. They've left with what they've had to follow him. Families, wealth, family business, all that to follow him. And he's not just Messiah to them. He's their friend. He's their mentor. He's their teacher, their, their rabbi. But on sight of Jesus' resurrection, huh? one gospel says that in Luke, he says that all of the disciples, when they saw Jesus raised from the dead, they disbelieved for joy. It was unbelievable to them. Upon sight of Jesus, their great love for their friend and their Lord and their Messiah, it actually amplified their joy. As they saw him conquer death and raise from the grave, and it's hard for us even today uh, to imagine because we don't see this in our day-to-day and yet the historical account of Jesus says that he is the firstborn from among the dead. He is risen from the grave. One thing that we have got to get into our heads is the reality of Jesus' resurrection. The reality that he is not dead. The reality that Jesus of Nazareth, the guy with the flesh on his bones, he is alive. He is ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is governing and ruling and present with his people. He really died. He really was buried. He really, really, really rose from the grave. 
that the resurrection is everything to our faith. We cannot afford to forget this reality. There's credible evidence that this resurrection really happened. So if you're a skeptic, if you're a seeker, if you're just not quite convinced, I would urge you to go and to find proof and to, and to find the, the people with the PhDs who have given their lives to say that this is a very, very, very possible outcome because world history has changed, flipped on the reality of the resurrection. He is not dead like the other prophets, the other leaders of world religions. The whole of Christianity swept the known world beginning in the first century and completely toppled Rome by the third because dozens and dozens and dozens of people saw the real Jesus and then gave their lives. It drove them to never recant, to never renounce him as Lord. It has empowered everything for them, their courage and their posture. They have trusted him because they have seen him. It is no myth. If Jesus didn't die, if he didn't rise, we're pitiful and we're wasting our time here. This is a lame place to be on a Sunday morning that looks beautiful like that outside if this is all a match. But, 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 if Jesus did rise from the grave, and he did, then we should listen to him. Just verses earlier. These disciples are up on a mountaintop and they hear the father speak and they say, hey, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. If he is really alive, if he is really real, then we should listen to him. Like really, really listen to him. Take in his words, take in his teaching. And we should not only listen to him, but that listening to him drives us then to want to be faithful to him. The word is obedience. The word is willing to follow him, willing to trust him. If Jesus said that we're free, then the sons are free. That's his statement to Peter. Then what does it mean for you and I? Here's what it means for you and I. Ultimately, through salvation in Christ, we gain ongoing, unbroken, unmediated relationship with God. It's ongoing. We, there's not a time that we do not any longer have relationship with God. If we have trusted him and, and said, you are the son of God, I trust you. It's ongoing. He's not going to take that from us. It's unbroken in the sense that he will keep us even though we sin and even though we fall on our faces and even though we make all kinds of trouble of our lives after the point of following him, he says that the work that he has begun in us, he will bring to completion. He's given us his spirit who seals us and who keeps us. So even though for, for the day of redemption, as Paul says to the Ephesians, so even though we fall on our faces, even though we stumble and fall, even if it's days, it's months, it's years, the Lord Jesus will not lose any of those whom the Father has given him. This is what he said in John chapter 16 or 17. I won't lose any of them. I'm not going to lose my people. That means we are secure. Are you saying eternal security is a thing? I am. The biblical kind, not the wacky kind. He will keep us. We have confidence. And our relationship with him is, so it's ongoing, it's unbroken, but it's also unmediated. You don't need a pastor, you don't need a prophet to find Christ. 
You can meet with him as you go because he's given you his spirit. He's present to you. This is a, really a return to the reality of, to the reality of Eden. Jesus is, Eden was a kind of temple. And then as we rebelled against God, uh, we, we, we were separated from him and our relationship needed to be mediated to him. We needed forgiveness. And so through Moses, the, the tabernacle was created and God's presence filled it. And the sins of men and women were forgiven through this sacrificial system. The tabernacle would become the temple, but Jesus would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's the three days that he was in the grave. And now God's presence is mediated to all of his people everywhere through him, through his body. So Jesus is the true temple, which means something functional for us, that we can walk with Jesus in our day. We can truly walk with him in the midst of our day, like Adam and Eve did, like, like the priests did in the temple. I said this, but I'm going to say it again. God, the Holy Spirit, he lives in us, and he leads us to have fellowship with Jesus through his word, through his sacraments, through his church, which is his people. Whatever our circumstances, we can live our lives in God's presence. We can live our lives in God's presence in the cool of the day, in the heat of the day, in the stress of the day, in the joy of the day, in the grief of the day, in the pain of the day, in the uncertainty of the day. We can walk with him no matter the situation. So through faith in Christ, we're restored to God, we're made children, and we are freed for unbroken relationship with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Breathe. Here's my second point. Not only are we freed for unbroken relationship with God, but we're also freed to love and to serve and to be a blessing to the people around us. Paul, the, he'll, the, the apostles, they'll begin to develop this theology of freedom in Christ. And it's all over. There's these phrases all over in your New Testaments. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. All, all over the Bible, it's talking about us being in Christ, protected by him, surrounded by him, covered by him. And Paul will develop this theology for a church in Galatia decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he'll say this, he'll write this to them in, in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that you that Christ has set us free. And then in verse 13, he'll say this. He'll say, hey, brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. You're called to be a free people only. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve yourself, to serve your flesh, but rather through love, the love that God has poured into our hearts, serve one another. Use your freedom to serve. And he says, Paul says, the whole law, it's fulfilled in one word. You will love your neighbor or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Did you know that Jesus's brother, James, uh, he uses this phrase, this shorthand phrase, uh, law of liberty as a descriptive term for the gospel. James, Jesus' own brother, gave his life, was actually killed uh, because of his confession that Jesus is Lord. Do any of you believe that your brothers or sisters are God? That's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. And that's the conclusion that James came to at the end of his life, so much so that he was willing to give his life for it. 
What James is getting at is that the gospel not only liberates us from the penalty for our sin and from, and from the law's demands on us, but the gospel also sends us forward to serve. It's the law of liberty. Part of what our freedom in Christ includes is the freedom to actually lay our liberties down for the sake of serving other people. Look at verses 26 and 27. Uh, so Jesus asks, like, who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? And Peter answered, he said, uh, Jesus said, from their sons or from others? And, and Peter said, well, it's from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, and take that and give it to them for me and also for yourself. Jesus, as God's own son, is not obligated to pay the temple tax. He, he has no obligation, yet he understands, Jesus understands an important principle. Sometimes we have rights that better serve others when we lay them down. Sometimes we possess rights, and the best way to make use of those rights is to not use them, is to lay them aside. I learned that there's a fancy word for this this week in my study. It's called adiaphora. This word adiaphora literally means there's it, no difference, makes no difference. It's a word that describes things that don't make a moral difference. These are adiaphorous issues. So Jesus understands wisely that to exercise his freedom and say, I'm not paying the tax, just because he has the freedom not to pay it, it can unnecessarily compromise his mission by creating controversy that serves no major purpose but only gets in his way. It only just stirs up the hornet's nest and it serves no functional purpose. For example, Paul, he'll press on this extensively in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. He'll tell the, the Corinthians to go ahead and, and eat meat sacrificed to idols. So these people who are living in Corinth, they're living among Greeks, they're living among the pagans, and there's, uh, there's markets where all this meat is being sold, and this meat has been, has been uh, blessed by, in the temples by, uh, you know, according to the pagan gods, and then now it's sold in the market. And Pete, uh, uh, Paul is saying, hey, don't worry about that. You can eat it as long as it doesn't bother your conscience. And as long as it doesn't tear the consciences of your brothers and sisters in Christ, too. So, like, if you want to eat the stuff, eat it. But don't, like, have your brothers and sisters in Christ over and then announce the fact that you're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols and then expect them to jump in if they're not there yet. Love them and serve them by laying down your freedom to eat meat. So you consider you and you also consider them. The idea is, what is it to go without me for one meal in order to serve your brothers and sisters? When consuming that meat will create distance and it'll create tension and it'll create division between you. Do you lose anything by laying that right down? For some in the room, do you know that there are some arguments worth losing? Husbands and wives know this. There are some arguments that are worth losing when in order to win the argument, you have to lose the person because you've got to come up over the top of them and you've got to destroy them in order to get your way. There are some arguments worth losing. 
we have a saying with our kids. Uh, they get annoyed with us and roll their eyes. So if kids, if you're in the room, we'll say, but did you die? When they're not getting their way. But did you die? But did you die? And they're like, no, you know. And it shuts them up for a moment. It's kind of like that for us. Sometimes there are some things that we need to lay down and we can ask ourselves the question, am I going to die? No, I'll be just fine. I'm not going to die. I can go without the beer or I can go without the meat or I can go without the thing. The extended COVID season, you knew I was going to bring it up, was like a master class in a diaphorus issues. But none of us saw it coming. I was so unskilled in this season, completely unprepared for like wave after wave after wave of all of the different kinds of rights that would be flexed around us. And in this little community and in our larger community, we realized that there were a lot of things we could fight over. Some of them were worth it and some of them were not worth it. Now, all cards on the table, masks annoy me to no end. They just do. We're on a flight this week and there are people on the plane wearing masks and I'm like, talking to the Lord, like, stop judging them. Stop judging them. Stop judging them. Because the reality is, is that maybe family members or health issues, I have no, no idea what's going on in that person's circle or in that person's body. And yet my impulse was like, three years ago, like, can we be done? Can we please be done with this season? But if one of you are in the hospital with lung issues, I will not hesitate to put a mask on my face and come and see you. Some of our rights are worth laying down for the sake of other people. There are a multitude of people, many of them out there on the internet, who have yet to learn that not every hill is worth dying on. Come on. We'll stop. <laughs> Preach. Sometimes it's best to lay your liberty down for the sake of others in order to not make them stumble. So Jesus gave up his liberty and he paid the tax, even though the tax had no claim on it. In the same way, maybe we're free not to get in our cars and to drive down here on a Sunday morning, a few Sundays each month. Maybe we're free not to do that. We're justified by faith in Christ, not church attendance. We're not justified by our church attendance. However, Jesus died to save his church and to make his church, and maybe our neighbor needs us and has much to gain by our willingness to get up, to leave our comfort, to come and to be beside them, to sing beside them, to pray beside them, to take the sacraments beside them, to see them, to love them, to embrace them, to be present with them. Maybe we need to lay down our rights in order to be here and to be present and to be open to whatever it is that the Lord has for us that morning, to see and to know the people around us. Maybe we are free to not want kids in our community groups. Those little buggers are noisy and they interrupt and they make messes. And after a time, it is wearying. But what does it look like to lay our freedom down in order to make space for people who need our attention, our prayer, our presence, our mentoring. Maybe you're free to not leave a bad tip or to, to leave a bad tip at the restaurant because of bad service. Or maybe you're free not to leave a tip at all because of bad service. But what does it look like to leave a generous tip and a kind word and a prayer in Jesus' name? 
for the people who are serving you. We'll do well to remember and to rehearse that Jesus Christ has freed us from the law's demands and from sin's penalty. And in all of the other diaphorists, the issues that don't really make that big of a difference that we encounter, we will do well to remember Jesus' humility, that he was willing to lay down his liberty all the way to the point of laying down his life in order to bring prodigal sons and daughters like you and I into his family forever. He is our example. Here's where we're all in. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves. Can you hear this, church? Have this mind among yourselves. This is the mind that we are to have collectively among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We've got a new mind. We've got the Spirit. He's renewing our mind day by day. And this is the mind. This is the mindset. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant who was born in the likeness of men. Eternal God, the Son, the second member of the Trinity, left what he was to become what he had not yet become, to become man. He did not forsake his divinity. He added to his deity humanity. He became human, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for the glory of the Father and for the good of you and I. Therefore, because of his humility, because of his service to us and his love for us, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a son or daughter of God. Yes, you know that. You have not spoken to Jesus in prayer and confessed your sin and your need and asked him for forgiveness. You're living in this thin space where you're gathering here with sons or daughters, but you're not yet a son or a daughter. Jesus invites you right now to receive him. And he promises that all who come to him will never be turned away, never put to shame. The prayer between you and him goes like this, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that you are Lord. Help. Help me to follow you. Help me to trust you. Teach me what it means to be a disciple. Maybe you're here and you're a son or a daughter, but you're aloof, you're distant, you're cold toward Jesus. He's not been your priority. Jesus calls you to return and to lay down your rights to choose things other than him. He's gracious. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and who have your priorities out of order. And he won't turn you away. He will continue to come to you. Maybe you're here and you just need to hear that Jesus is near. He's near. He's with me. We're all right. Continue to love him. Continue to trust him. Continue to entrust yourself to him. We want to urge you, if you have not yet believed, to believe. Maybe this morning for you is an encouragement to continue to believe. I want you to know whether you showed up 15 minutes after we began or whether you showed up early or whenever it is that you wandered in here, we as a church community pray for you. We 
pray for you regularly. We want you to know the life, the abundant life that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray with me. Father, would you open our eyes to see your wonder? Would you help us to know that Jesus is Lord? He's Messiah. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Holy Spirit, would you speak in our hearts to every single person in the room, outside of your family or on the inside of your family? Would you speak and would you call us to yourself? Would you help us to find the truth of your resurrection? Would you help to bolster our faith with the facts of what have happened in the first what has happened in the first century in Jerusalem? It's changed everything. So Father, be glorified in us this morning. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer.